This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Pediatric Behavioral Mental Health, Trauma-Informed Care, Part 2. Produced by Aisha Delakia, Caitlin Blackburn, Brenna Chase, and Daniel O'Meara. Trauma-Informed Care, Part 2. The recommendations made in our first video on trauma-informed care are meant to be used for all visits, regardless of a known trauma history. However, they are also useful to keep in mind when a patient screens positive for a potentially traumatic event on a screener or has a known history of trauma. In this second video on trauma-informed care, our focus is specifically on patients who do have a trauma history and how we can overcome some of the barriers to discussing trauma. Our goals are for learners to enhance their ability to recognize why a patient may not endorse a history of trauma, define reasons why a provider might not screen for trauma, identify and utilize strategies to respond to a patient who does screen positive for a trauma history. We are fortunate enough to have met with Andrea Zabo, a woman who generously spoke with us about her experience with trauma. She shared her thoughts on trauma-informed care before, during, and after her amputation, and we are lucky enough to share some of her own words with you in clips throughout this video. Hopefully her insights will underscore the suggestions we present here. The following suggestions are largely derived from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration known as SAMHSA, as outlined in their Treatment Improvement Protocol series. For a patient who does have a positive history for trauma, it can be difficult to identify its existence. According to SAMHSA, the two main barriers for evaluating trauma are patients not reporting trauma and providers overlooking trauma and its effects. Why might a patient not endorse a history of trauma when one exists? Patients might not identify certain experiences as traumas and might not think to discuss them. What is considered traumatic to one individual may not be considered as such to another, which is an important point to think about for medical providers when they are listening to a patient share a trauma history. For instance, two people may be in the same car accident, but the events of that accident may be understood very differently. One, a narrative of fear pain, and helplessness. Another, a narrative of gratitude and resilience. Others may avoid discussing the traumatic event for a variety of other reasons, such as knowing that a discussion will bring up such feelings as guilt, shame, or sadness that they understandably do not want to experience. Some patients may downplay an experience due to repression of the memory, or because they simply don't think it is relevant to the presenting concern that brought them to the hospital. Others may fear being judged by the provider or shamed for their experience. Patients may also not endorse trauma due to a lack of trust. Describing potentially the worst experience you've had to someone you don't know or who you barely know but don't know if they care about you is no small thing and trust takes time to build which can be difficult if we do not have continuity with the patient. The other thing that makes me a little bit hesitant sometimes to, to disclose my trauma is that 
it's you can't put it in a one-liner really or it's very difficult to put it in a one-liner um you know kind of all the time that i want to take to make sure that i'm getting the point across of like things that i learned along the process it's hard to get it all all out in one in one quick quick way why might a provider not screen for trauma it's important to note why you as a provider may be hesitant to screen a patient for trauma Screening for trauma can feel different from screening for other concerns in healthcare, which is likely part of the reason people don't ask. Providers might simply not know how to, or not have had experience in doing so, which is likely a common feeling. Similarly, providers might feel that if they do elicit a history of trauma, they will not know how to respond, which resources to refer their patient to, or they will have to navigate a legal process such as reporting of abuse or neglect. Others might underestimate the impact that trauma can have on a patient's physical and mental health, or feel that the presenting symptoms are more important than the cause of them. Some might feel pressed for time or just be worried that asking will be upsetting to patients. Sometimes, language used by a provider might prevent a positive screen such as asking about a history of abuse and not defining what is meant by abuse. Well, I think something that was really powerful for me was, you know, finding the right words and like trying to describe things over and over again, you know, until I like it, it clicked for me. The more you can say it um, in different ways, um, it can go a long way. What to do if a patient screens positive? We've gone over some of the barriers to identifying patients who have a trauma history. Now, we'll talk about those patients who are known to have experienced trauma. Maybe the screener administered by your clinic elicited a positive response, or maybe you asked a screening question that was positive. What do you do now? Screeners are only useful if there is a follow-up after the positive screen. Screeners do not usually tell you which trauma-related symptoms may exist, their severity, or if a traumatic stress disorder is present. Also remember that a negative screen does not exclude trauma. It may take time for the information to come out as further trust is built. If a patient does screen positive, the next steps will be very provider and patient dependent. There are a variety of further questionnaires that can be used to further delineate the trauma. Sometimes, Brief written questionnaires can be less threatening for patients or parents to fill out than face-to-face -face interviews and can be less intrusive. However, keep in mind that while we should feel empowered to validate patients' experiences and make supportive statements, it is often the case that this piece should be conducted by those with behavioral health training. It may seem scary or challenging to figure out where to start in these conversations with patients but remember the five principles we talked about earlier. Safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, patient empowerment, and allow those to guide you. An important thing to note is that you oftentimes do not need to know all the details of a traumatic event. In fact, the patient disclosing a full account may cause them re-traumatization that they did not expect and it may be your job to prevent them from experiencing this without the proper resources in place such as a mental health provider with whom they can debrief and co-regulate. In younger children, the interview should sometimes be done by someone from Child Protective Services, particularly in light of our mandated reporting requirements.
Instead, focus on the patient's symptoms and presentation. Their current functioning and resources or therapies to meet their current needs is of higher importance. The trauma does not need to be the focus of the visit, and sometimes just having an awareness that a patient has a personal history of trauma is enough to guide the remainder of care. And lastly, keep in mind that while we do not want to probe for unnecessary details, it's important to not encourage avoidance of the topic, as that can promote stigmatization about the trauma and enforce the idea that talking about the topic is dangerous. I also have some people who kind of overdo it sometimes, you know, like I have already stated that, you know, this doesn't bother me. I'm happy to talk about it, but they keep kind of persevering like, you know, we really don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, you know, we really don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. And it's almost like, do you not want to talk about it then? <laughs> so having the conversation. Before you begin, explicitly tell your patient that you are asking these questions to better be able to provide care for them and that you understand it may be difficult to talk about. Ask for permission to discuss the topic and use open-ended language to ask about their experiences. When asking questions, be kind and matter-of-fact in efforts to normalize the patient's responses. The patient should know that they are not obligated to answer a question and that these questions can be returned to at a later date if the patient wishes. This allows the patient an increased sense of personal control. I see a lot of children who have experienced challenging or traumatic things in their life. I saw that you checked this box off on the survey. Do you want to talk more about this? I really appreciate you sharing that with me. What you've gone through is really tough and I can't imagine how you must be feeling. What I do want you to know is that you do not have to answer any questions that you don't feel comfortable answering. You can talk as little about this or as much about this as you want. This is your visit, and I want you to feel safe in this conversation. Never require patients to describe traumatic events in detail and follow the patient's lead on how much they want to disclose. Often, full understanding of a traumatic event takes multiple visits and the development of trust between provider and patient. Ultimately, follow the patient's lead. I think one thing that's really just helpful to remember when you're going to be working with someone um, in terms of thinking about trauma-informed care, the most important thing I think is really meeting the patient where they are at. So some patients are going to be more comfortable sharing their experience and they might talk your ear off about it like myself and other people might still be closed off for a while and not be willing to talk about it. And I think you just need to meet the patient where they're at and be able to meet be able to read those cues. So, you know, those social cues, those verbal cues, the body language, it's very important to read it. You know, we we learn as physicians, as medical students to look at the patient, you know, before you do anything, look at the patient. And I think that that is so important, not only looking at them, but also like looking at these cues, understanding these cues. Um, is it appropriate for me to ask more? If I look, if they look like they're starting to get uncomfortable, you know, say, something like, I understand that this, uh, this might be, you know, very triggering for you or um, something like that. Ensure you respond to a child with compassion. Children tend to view the world egocentrically and can often believe a traumatic event is their own fault. If this occurs, directly reject that thought and tell them that they are not responsible for events that they have experienced. Partner with parents and caregivers who may feel extreme guilt about the trauma their child has endured 
and boost both child and parent self-efficacy by praising the child's or family's strengths, and always be kind and empathetic. This is not your fault, and you should not blame yourself for what happened to you. You're such a, such a strong and smart kid, and I'm so impressed by how much you help your parents out at home, and what a great job you do with your little sister. And it's so wonderful to see what a loving and present parent that you are. It's so great to see what a wonderful role model she has at home. Ensure you ask about any possible trauma-related symptoms, such as sleep changes, behavioral changes, or other symptoms of comorbid mental health conditions, such as depression or anxiety. Also, keep a thoughtful stance for symptoms possibly being attributable to trauma. Parents, caregivers, and children may not always recognize the connection between traumatic stress responses and other symptoms. So she started to wet the bed every night, and this is so unlike her. She was potty trained super early, and we're just not used to seeing this. Yeah, I can imagine that must be confusing and sound so stressful for both of you. I know you mentioned before that you thought she might be being bullied. When did that start? Yeah, now that you mention it, it does seem that it started around the same time that we started to see her start to wet the bed. Um, I never thought of it that way, but there is a chance that it's related. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it might not be the entire problem, but it's worth considering that the two might go hand in hand. Stress can impact kids in a variety of ways and sometimes causes symptoms that we don't even realize are connected. In an older child, always screen for suicidality when trauma is disclosed. SAMHSA recommends language such as, In the past, have you ever had suicidal thoughts, had intention to commit suicide, or made a suicide attempt? Do you have any of those feelings now? Have you had any such feelings recently? If someone says yes, make sure you know what they are saying yes to and consider breaking questions down so positive answers indicate an affirmation of specific behaviors. So, in the past, have you had suicidal thoughts? Yeah, a couple years ago, I think. Okay. And have you ever had a suicide attempt? No, I've never really acted on those thoughts. Okay. Any suicidal thoughts recently? Um, no, only a few years ago, I did. Okay. Remember that for patients, discussing a traumatic event or the consequences of that event can be re-traumatizing and may cause them to feel as if the event were occurring again. This is important to note in the inpatient setting, where we take multiple histories as a patient moves from the emergency department through different areas of the hospital. Balance the need to obtain information for clinical care with the need to keep the patient feeling safe. If a thorough history was obtained by a provider in the emergency department or by a medical student and clarifying questions will not alter the patient's treatment plan, consider not repeating the questions about the trauma history. This can be particularly relevant for patients boarding with psychiatric reasons on the inpatient teams. Additionally, be aware of your own emotional responses when you hear a trauma history, as you may experience a variety of emotions that may be misinterpreted by your patient, such as disinterest. Do not make assumptions about a patient's experiences and avoid statements that imply any judgment, such as, you must be so relieved. Remember that trauma is ubiquitous for both providers and patients. What I really can't stress enough is just the empathy is kind of the biggest, well, this is the biggest thing for me and not, you know, it's okay to not have anything proper to say, um, but just, you know, being that listening ear, I would rather you just listen to me rather than say, 
um, oh, I know what you're going through or, oh, I can, I can understand, you know, I, I, I know, yeah, something like this happened to me or my parent or someone else I knew. And that was always really hard for me because I always felt like you don't, you don't know what, you don't know what I'm going through. You have no, absolutely no idea what I'm going through. So that was always really hard for me sometimes. The other important thing is just always just to be empathetic and realizing that you don't know exactly what they've gone through, even if you also have had your right foot amputated because of a, you know, clot in your artery, like your story is completely different than mine. After the conversation or visit. Ultimately, know the resources that exist in your clinic or hospital, such as the Child Witness to Violence Project or Integrated Behavioral Health Clinic, both at Boston Medical Center. Any treatment plan you come up with should be made collaboratively and mutually agreed upon. Ensure your patient is safe and feels comfortable with the follow-up in place before ending the visit. Trauma-informed care means to me, I think the most important thing that um, is for providers to just go in with empathy and a listening ear. Um, and, you know, you might not always have the answers, uh, but knowing where to look for the best answers and knowing like who to get on board to help you get through whatever trauma that they're going through and having the best people that you know there to help them through it is going to be very important. Ensure you or another provider will be able to follow up with the patient and track any changes in symptoms over time to determine whether the treatment plan needs to be adjusted or any additional referrals may be beneficial to the patient. To summarize, patients may not endorse trauma to you for many reasons, including lack of trust, worry about emotions attached to the trauma, fear of judgment, or different perceptions of the experience as trauma or not. On the other hand, we should be aware of reasons that might prevent ourselves from asking our patients about trauma and the impact it's had. These conversations are hard and take practice, and they will not always go the way you hope they will. But hopefully this video has given you some tips in starting those conversations and has improved your ability to respond to a patient who screens positive for trauma. And remember, the work you are doing to provide this care to patients is so important. Not only will it enhance a patient's trust and strengthen the patient-provider relationship, but also can promote patient safety and ultimately improve their health. We would like to thank Andrea once again for her willingness to share her story with us. And thank you all so much for listening. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information.